You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We get into the journey of their lives, the ups and downs, how they got to where they are today, and how they get through the day today. Because I believe that our feelings of being successful, being enough, being worthy, being fulfilled, being lovable are not out there somewhere. Once I do this, have this, be this, then I will feel it. Nope, it's up to us to claim it for ourselves each and every day. On today's episode, I have Elisa Vitti. Holy shit, guys. She is, I was blown away with her intelligence and her passion and all the work that she has been doing and is doing in the women's hormone space. I don't even know what to call it. She's the creator of the cycle syncing method. Um, She's the founder of Flow Living. She's written two books. Her most recent book, In the Flow, is groundbreaking. I can't even just like, wow. I can't say enough about her. Let's just get into the episode. We're talking about you and your story. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. I do want to hear about your books and the app and everything. But what I'm most interested in is you feel it sounds like to me like yeah a lot of your work is based on hormones is that right yeah we're not recording yet right we're, we're okay. nope i am recording oh, now. okay <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let your person know when to officially start <laughs> sometimes i just do that sometimes i'll just start rec- i almost recorded when you started to tell me about my like hormones from changing from breastfeeding <laughs> i was like this is good good we could use this <laughs> um yeah, yes, my thing is hormones. Yep, that's true. <laughs> Which I think is amazing. And a lot of the things that I've seen you be being shared in, you know, your books or and even in other podcast interviews are like mind blowing, like, but they make sense. But like, yeah, and like what makes me think like, wow, what the hell is Alyssa doing that she's researching? <laughs> like getting the information that we need. So it makes me think. Like this must have originated as something as most things I think that become a passion that we're sharing with the world is something that was personal that I'm guessing you must have a personal story that got you on this path. Yep. It's so true. Um, So, yeah, we can talk about that. We can talk about. um... Well, that's where I want to start is. Yeah. So like what was your first experience, like even like learning about hormones or where did you start to like look into that or where did you struggle with things early on? Well, I mean, yeah, for it is, it is personal for me in the sense that I would say there were kind of a few, um, pivotal moments in my, uh, young adulthood as a, as a, as a developing woman that, uh, changed my perspective and change the trajectory of my career, my life, you know, that, you know, you, you can string them together in retrospect. Um, (laughs) but as they are going through them, they don't necessarily seem to mean anything in particular. But the first experience that I had was sex ed class in sixth grade. Um, the day we learned about menstruation, which I had never heard about before. My parents are, they were children when they immigrated here, but you know, we grew up in this very 
in, in a very innocent way in my household. And so like I had no, I had just, there was no discussion about it, no dialogue. My aunts, there was no, you know, like women gathering to complain about their bodies or their hormones. It was just completely not appropriate conversation, I guess. And so it never came up. So I entered that um, educational moment in sixth grade, totally unprejudiced, right? Completely unprogrammed. And I heard about this, this, the, the, you know, the menstruation and the cycle. And I was like, completely awe-inspired. I just thought it was the most extraordinary thing that I... Oh, wow. I mean, I was just like, I literally remember, I was, I know I can picture where I was sitting. We were all in this, we were like, you know, we had circled up our desks, the teachers in the front. I was like back center of the circle. And I literally like my head was like on a swiveling around left, right, like looking at my friends in the room, like, did you know about this? I was so excited. And I remember seeing the looks on most of the other girls' faces of like, just this really negative kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. And I immediately then, you know, we were dismissed for lunch and recess. And so I grabbed my three best girlfriends and I, we sat on this wall that was <laughs> outside the, the building and uh, which I've subsequently gone back to photograph. It's up on my IG feed. And I promptly be I, like, I was like, okay, we are starting the period club. And the period club has two goals. We're going to guess who's going to get their period first. And we're going to do like, you know, anytime we have recess, we'll go check to see if anybody's gotten her period, you know? <laughs> and I, I somehow became the de facto president of said period club. And even then, somehow, you know, because I guess my future career was already embedded in me, somehow could tell who was going to start menstruating first just by facial diagnosis. And I knew I would be last. And, but we would, you know, in any random moment during recess, somebody would be like, oh, I don't know, maybe I just got it. We'd run to the bathroom. The three of, three of us would wait outside while the one who felt like she might've gotten it was inside checking. And, uh, you know, of course, no one actually got it during these recess checks, but we were all very encouraging of each other. And it was- But you guys were like excited that you're, it was coming. I mean, I think- was excited. And I think that my three good friends, you know, in sixth grade, like were really um, happy to go along with like my enthusiasm. But I, I was like, this is like legit awesome, you know, and they were like, oh, because what was and the reason why I sort of spelled out the fact that I had the childhood that I had without any um, prior exposure is that I had come to learn subsequently that pretty much everyone growing up, even as young girls, we do hear messaging from the outside world, adults, you know, family members. It's in the ether. It's in popular culture, which I was also not exposed to in my childhood um, about, you know, the curse of womanhood. Yeah. And I just, I didn't, I just didn't, none of it filtered through my consciousness ever until after I learned about the biology and was just fully inspired by the power of our, of the female body, because when you take it on face value without the cultural narrative, it is totally extraordinary and awe-inspiring. And so that was, that's a moment 
you know? Yeah. And that's so true that, yeah, like really, if you're thinking about like, it is so amazing what our bodies do, but you're right that we are mostly taught. And I'm pretty sure I don't remember. I feel like I don't remember my mom talking to me about it. So it must've been something in school or whatever too, that I learned about it. I mean, even like tween books, right? Like the babysitter's club for yeah. those books like back I, in the day. <laughs> I don't remember like a big talk about it, but, and I remember, but I, yeah, it, it does always feel like that being taught or being told or picking up on that your period is a burden that like, yeah, it's something that you're like, kind of want to hide even like shameful, like, Oh God, because you know, it's like this fear of like, uh, people knowing if you're bleeding, are you leaking anywhere? Like, you know, that it really so often, yeah, it's like, it's, I think that most young girls and that that's how I felt when I got it. And that's how most adults even live into it. It's like, you know, something to be like embarrassed of and that you wish that you didn't have. Yeah. And I, I think we have variations of the negative, right? You feel embarrassed, you feel like outright, like hatred for it, you know? Um, or I think the least of it, the least defensive of those negative feelings is just that you kind of like, it's benign neglect avoidance, you know, but that's all part of the same spectrum of shame reaction. And that's what you're taught. You're taught to be ashamed of your body, that this is somehow this dirty, bad, problematic thing that's mysterious and unpredictable. And once you have a problem, you're sort of stuck with it. And so that's just, but it's, I, I really feel it's valuable to share, um, a, an alternate reality version of that story. Uh, one in which a little girl, AKA me did not grow yeah. up exposed to popular culture. Like I, I, it's funny now I have a daughter and like, you know, my husband and I, he's, he also has immigrant parents. And so we will walk through children's bookstores and we're like, did you read any of these books when you were little? And he's like, no, <laughs> so you know, it's just, it's very different. And so, you, you know, like I never, there was no Judy Bloom. There was, you know, there was none of that. And so I, growing up just totally innocent and coming to see science just from a fact-based point of view, like this happens, um, you know, you, you feel excited, you feel happy, you feel positive, right? As opposed to what, and that, that could happen to more than more young girls than just me, right? If we yeah. decide what to expose them to, or we decide to, to um, curate the narrative better. But in the kind of more conventional narrative, we have all this negative talk, this dread is, oh my God, you know, your period's going to come at some point when you're a teenager and it's going to be horrible and there's nothing you can do about it. And you just have to suffer and hope that it, you know, you don't leak in the middle of school. You know, it's a different narrative and, and you get a completely different relationship with your body and your identity as a female based on which narrative you get inoculated with. Yeah. So th that's, that's sort of the first experience that I had. And then the second very pivotal experience that I had was my complete hormonal um, breakdown as a teenager. So while everybody, even though I was the president of the period club, um, everybody else was developing uh, properly and I was not. Um, I, even, even early on, I could tell, I could feel something was off with me. I remember 
speaking that to my parents and they, you know, trying to assure me that I'm sure everything was fine, but I was just not developing. And then eventually, like three months before I turned 16, I got my first period, although it was um, woefully not, you know, normal. Um, (laughs) And then already indicating, you know, that, that it was so delayed was one indication of hormonal imbalance. And then the actual first bleed itself, you know, had other um, indications of hormonal imbalance. And then from the age of, you know, 12 to 22, when you should be establishing that healthy hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis conversation where you're having regular ovulation, regular menstruation. Um, I had a total of six bleeds in that decade. Uh, two, two or three of which were chemically induced with synthetic progesterone. Um, it was a, a huge problem. And, and then of course it wasn't just missing periods that, that plagued me. It was then the, the, uh, sort of increasing combination of symptoms. It was just stockpiling one thing after another. So, uh, skin became very, very bad. You know, I, I once used to have cystic acne all over my face, chest and back. I mean, you could, I can't even describe to you what that looked like. I finally found a photo um, uh, like, you know, hard copy photo. So I'm going to upload that <laughs> to our website one of these days when I can get back into my, uh, my, my files. Um, and then, uh, my weight really started to, to just balloon. I mean, I, I'm five foot six and my weight probably topped out at 210 pounds, very, very heavy. And then all the mental health stuff started happening where it was like anxiety, depression, um, insomnia and just sort of like an inability to concentrate and and function in my day-to-day life. And this was all your like teenager early 20s. This is all That's starting right. to happen. Yep. That's right. So and so what then outside of that like what did your life look like cuz I make up all of that the physical stuff and the gaining weight and the acne for a teenager, young adult, and then the mental stuff too, like can be both, I mean, individually, they're all pretty devastating in how we show up for life and what we're taught is like right and wrong and what we're supposed to look like and all of that. So like, what, how was that affecting you? Like how you showed up in the world and in your life? Were you going to college? What were you pursuing? It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I, I think back to that and, and it's true how you are is how you are. (laughs) Um, even though I was dealing with all of these health issues and even though I was, um, you know, in all of my free time, like going to specialists and trying to figure out what was wrong and getting no answers. Um, I was still, uh, in high school, at least like pursuing um, let's say academic excellence, right? And I, I was the person who was, despite all of these health challenges, like, you know, in every honors class kicking ass, right? Because I loved learning. And that was actually my escape was uh, yeah. the school. Um, and that was a joy for me. And then going to college was the same. I, I got myself into Johns Hopkins, which is extremely 
challenging school to get into and also to be a student of. Um, and so school for me was always the place where, um, though my body didn't make sense, uh, studying did. <laughs> so high achieving in, in the mental capacity um, and then really struggling physically. And then from an emotional point of view, you know, that was a challenge too. You know, it was very isolating having all these issues that none of my other friends were dealing with. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of disconnect, which, you know, sort of emotional and, and disconnect, of just trying to like get through the day and, and try to survive the day. Um, and keep it together. And, and so there was a lot of emotional cleanup work that I had to do after I got well, but, um, I, I did my very best. I, I don't think I could have, I, I don't think I could have gone back and sick. I, I wouldn't go back and change how it happened because, um, I, I think, I think I, I, I thrived despite the challenges, but at the same time, um, I would simply go back and just give myself more hugs. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so it sounds like you threw yourself into learning and your schooling. When when you went to John Hopkins, what were you like? What was your plan for? My plan was to become an OBGYN, of course, because from a, oh. from a young age, I think probably from that sex ed class in sixth grade, I was yeah. like, oh well, I'm sold. This is I just want to I want to study women's health and. Um, be and then of course yeah i just i was always interested in biology and health and um, that seemed like the natural uh step for me but then as i was going through my experience and and had this third pivotal moment happen which uh you know involved me being so frustrated that i had gone to and i had access you know i grew up in massachusetts so i had access to harvard trained gynecologists and then at Hopkins, of course, I had access to arguably the best physicians in the in the country, if not the world. And no one knew what was wrong with me. You know, that that is frustrating. And and to be told that, yeah. you know, there isn't even if they could figure it out, you know, there's like, well, there's probably nothing that we could do anyway. I mean, it's just unacceptable. <laughs> so Well, and with that kind of with what you're having too, like, did you get told, because like I had my own, like yeah. not like it took me a long time to be ignited with fibromyalgia, which is technically what I feel like still just a word they give to people that they don't know <laughs> what's wrong with you really right. is that it still seems like an undiagnosis word, but, um, it's so frustrating, but I, like with, with, with your symptoms too, like were people at the doctors or maybe people in your life too, were they trying to act like it was just like changes like, Oh, well maybe you just need to like exercise or don't eat this or like, you know, like, well, what are you eating? Because if like cystic acne, like that they can just be like, well, it's, you're just not taking care of yourself. Like, was it that sort of stuff? Which. Yeah. Yeah. That was going on. Um, you know, it was like, try this for your skin or do, do, you know, some sort of diet or it's all in your head or, you know, not having a regular period. It's not a big deal. Um, yeah, there's a lot of dismissal. And I yeah. knew, I just knew that there was something going on. You know, I really do think that everybody has that inner voice that um, is connected to what is really happening in your body. If you just listen, it, it really never leads you astray. And so I, um, 
did a lot of research in the library at Hopkins, the wonderful magical place. And I found an obstetrics journal because, you know, what does a girl who's, you know, carrying a lot of excess weight with tremendous cystic acne do on a Friday night? She's researching. <laughs> She's not going on dates. She's researching. So, <laughs> so in an obstetrics journal, I found um, an article that uh, described exactly everything that was going on with me. I mean, it was just extraordinary. Wow. It was extraordinary to have even found it because back then it was just referred to the two men, of course, who had um, diagnosed or created the diagnosis. And so it was called the Stein-Leventhal syndrome, which we now call polycystic ovarian syndrome. But um, to have even found that was a pretty big miracle. And so I took it to my gynecologist's office like the next day. And I said, we need to do the following tests immediately. <laughs> and we did them. And, and she said, my goodness, you're right. You have this disorder. And when you showed up and you said like this, and we need to do these tests, what, did she seem like she was just like appeasing you? Or was she like, oh, okay, you might be on to something? Yeah, it, it was a really interesting experience of uh, stepping into leadership and age self agency yeah. and self advocacy and really, um, having all barriers or, or conventions around authority and, um, power dynamics just evaporate again in the light, in the pursuit of facts. Yeah. Right. And with the focus being on the science and the information and not on the opinion. So it was very interesting and, and something that I, um, you know, sort of like one of the key cornerstones of my foundation as a person in general <laughs> um, is like, what is, what is the truth? What are the facts? Um, so we, you know, I said, great. I'm so glad that uh, you see what I see. What do we do now? What? And she said, really, there's nothing that we can do. This is going to get progressively worse. We're going to have to medicate mm. you a lot for the obesity, the impending diabetes, the impending hypertension, uh, the, mm. uh, you know, you'll likely never be able to have uh, children naturally, even if we use uh, IVF, it may not be successful. And then, of course, you're at greater risk for heart disease and cancer as you get older and we'll just do our best to medicate you along the way. Wow. And you know, I was a young woman. I was 20. You're like, yay. I just found this diagnosis for myself that I had to like fight to get these tests. And now they're like, well, here's a word, but we still can't help you. And almost giving you like more stuff. But it was in that moment, Trisha, in the chair, in that room, you know, I, I, these like, you know, so we're now on pivotal moment number three. And this was, this was another life changing moment. And it, and it really was that inner voice saying, li literally just said, that's not your future. And I opened my mouth and repeated that, substituting appropriate pronouns. And <laughs> I said, she said, you know, well, what do you mean? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to take my very expensively trained mind and I'm going to go figure it out. And she's like, all right, well, I'm here when you want the, the you know, the meds. Yeah. And, like, I'll be here to write you those prescriptions. Yeah. And, and she wasn't being snarky about it. You know, she wasn't. I don't have that rem rem memory of her being like 
you know, condescending, just like, okay, you know, she didn't know. And I didn't know. And I was being honest about that. And I, and cause fundamentally, you know, I, what I said to her was, if you're telling me that none of this medication is going to cure what is wrong with my hormones, then why would I take it? She's like, that's an excellent question. Yeah. You know, so she was an excellent physician because she didn't just, um, dismiss my questions and she honored my intelligence. And, um, you know, I think, uh, being part of the same, uh, you know, Hopkins family probably gave her a little bit more of a sense of respecting my intellect, but you know, she, she didn't push it on me, which a lot of women have the opposite experience. You know, they're like, you know, Oh no, you have to take this. You, what do you, you know, don't be ridiculous. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. You know, we don't know enough about this. There isn't a lot of research done. And again, this was 20 years ago. And she said, yes, none of what I'm going to prescribe to you will fix what's wrong. It will continue to get worse. Um, these medications may help mitigate symptoms, but nothing will fix you. And I wasn't interested in Band-Aids. I wanted to be well because for the past decade, so much of my, the that last decade of your childhood, you know, 12 to 22 had been really altered, you know, really deeply, fundamentally altered time that you can never get back by this hormonal chaos. And so I wasn't interested in a Band-Aid. I wanted to restore my wellness and my vitality in a, in a much deeper way. That's what I was interested in. And so that's what I started pursuing. And that, that moment, you know, changed everything. Because I could have said, you know, I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> Again, probably my upbringing. <laughs> but I could have said, okay, well, I'll thank you so much. I'll take all the meds and and that would have been that, right? But the that list the, that I think again, I think just because I had a lot of space um, left to myself as a child to like listen to my inner voice, I just was that was my default setting, and so I did do that in that moment, and that began a journey of um, a, a lifelong now, well, at least a two decade long um, passion <laughs> around understanding the endocrine system, understanding how to manipulate it for, uh, you know, bringing it back into homeostasis, which is a technical term meaning balance. And, um, and then of course, all of the other amazing things that I discovered about, um, women's hormonal cycles and their impact on the brain and the metabolism, I mean, just everything. It is extreme. What nature has imbued you with if you have two X chromosomes is just stunningly remarkable in its power and scope. And the fact that women, to the extent that they are, you know, 47% of women are suffering from hormone and autoimmune issues is totally unnecessary. And I promised myself if I could get well, that I would build a platform that would enable and empower and educate other women about the information that they need to, to thrive in their female bodies. And that's what I did. Um, and I'm very proud to have built the world's first, you know, menstrual, modern, if you will, menstrual healthcare company. Um, we take care of women all over the planet because where, where do you get this information? 
you know, how do you actually learn how, if you have something wrong with your hormones, how to get well, there is nowhere. And that to me was on, it was unacceptable that I couldn't get a diagnosis for like a decade. And then it was unacceptable that once I did have a diagnosis that conventional medicine offered no treatment. And that's not just the case for PCOS. It's the same for fibroids and endometriosis. I mean, look at Lena Dunham, you know, um, and her experience of struggling with endo and having a hysterectomy at a young age, um, to fibromyalgia, there's just no research being done on women in their reproductive years. And so we suffer needlessly. And I found that to be unacceptable. And so I felt like I needed to do something about that. And that is what I have done. <laughs> I love it so much. And so when, when, when you get this diagnosis at that time, you were still studying at John Hopkins yeah. as that, to be an OBGYN. Is that right? I was still pursuing, I was an undergrad and, you know, at at 20, right. As one is, and, uh, made a decision that, um, you know, I would want to be able to help women in a way that conventional medicine obviously wasn't. So I started pursuing what is now called functional medicine, but of course that didn't exist 20 years ago. I threw myself into the research. I mean, it was exciting being at Hopkins because of just how cutting edge it is in terms of all sorts of research. And so what had been coming out at that time was the results, the initial results of the Human Genome Project, for example. And one of the things that came out of that unexpectedly um, was the discovery of the epigenome structure. So you hear maybe the term epigenetics, but what that actually means is that around your genes is wrapped this ghost-like protein structure that we refer to as the epigenome. And based on two things, and they discovered this by studying identical twins, why would one twin get cancer and the other one wouldn't? If genes dictate your, your physical reality, as we once believed um, back at the time before this project was researched. Uh, then identical twins should develop the same diseases. Yes, logical. But what we dis- what they discovered was that the based on the the behavior of the epigenetic uh, piece, right, uh, that you could have comp- two completely different health outcomes in an identical biological system, right? To two identical twins, and they they then drilled down even further. Well, what are the factors that, that cause this different difference in behavior of the epigenome? And it was only two things. So exciting. (laughs) This is only diet and lifestyle. So if one, if Uh... one twin ate fast food and smoked cigarettes, that epigenetics material would contract and constrict around certain genes turning on Mm. disease expression states in the body. Crazy. And then the other twin who did not eat fast food and did not smoke would not have their epigenomes constrict around those genes and they would not be sick. And I looked at that, Tricia, and I said, Oh my goodness, (laughs) that makes everything so clear that if the the what of your eating and the what of your living, right? If those two factors are powerful enough to drive epigenetic function, 
right? That then dictates genetic expression. Of course, diet and lifestyle factors are going to be the key drivers for glandular function. And when we're thinking about the endocrine system, it's all about those endocrine glands, right? And organs involved in this beautiful symphony of, you know, the, the endocrine system. And so that's how I began piecing together the protocol, which is now quite famous, called the flow protocol that I wrote about in my first book, Woman Code, um, that helps you restore uh, homeostasis to an endocrine system where all of the glands have gotten out of, out of that, making that beautiful music together, right? Where they've all gotten off track, which is what was happening with me. And it turns out that there is a specific sequence and order in which you must approach the the diet and lifestyle changes in order to um, have the endocrine system receive it and respond effectively, right? So for example, 15 years ago, it was very popular in, you know, like today, the trend is intermittent fasting, but 15 years ago, the trend was detoxing. Um, you may remember. And I always found that to be just so crazy because the, the, that is actually the last step that you want to do when it comes to recalibrating your endocrine function. And if you do that first, you can actually make it, make things much, much worse. So there's a, there's a uh. precision to how you must approach healing in the body. And I was able to figure that out. And um, then, of course, I applied this protocol to myself and was delighted, but not surprised to see what happened because the science is the science, right? If this is how the endocrine system works, then this is what the results should be. And of course it works so logically, right? As any good scientific experiment does. And so 60 pounds of weight melted off my body without deprivation or extreme workouts. My skin cleared up totally. Um, and my, you know, mood destabilization, you know, was eliminated. And of course my ovulation and cycle was restored and has been with me ever since. So it was, and that took the span of about six months to achieve, right? It was uh, wonderful to see. It was also, um, frustrating to see (laughs) because, uh, it was this, it's, it's such a simple thing, you know, to understand how the body works and then to take care of it properly according to its function, right? The form of your self care should follow the function of your body. And so, as women, we're not taught that. And so, that decade where I could have been healthy, menstruating properly, happy, you know, and all of those other things in my life, as those last 10 years of my childhood. Um, you know, that you, you can't get that back. So it, it always keeps me present to the why of what, why I do this work, because I know that that is not a unique experience that I suffered with in the sense that I lost a lot of time to unnecessary suffering. Every single woman that comes through the flow living virtual doors, um, has that same story of suffering then getting better through our through you know the methodology that we teach and then just sort of being like happy on the one hand and then the other hand like why didn't yeah. why didn't i know this sooner 
Yeah, I can imagine like being pissed off. Well, first, like so thrilled and like sort of like free, like, oh, my God, here I am. am. Like, this is possible. It's possible to feel this way. It's possible. But then also like, why the fuck did I have to be the one to discover? Like, why didn't anybody tell me? Why doesn't anybody know this? And then I probably isn't this taught to every young girl? Because he and then I'm sure that, good. yeah, like wanting to shout it from the rooftops as well. Like, I have the answer. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I've been I've been um, doing that for for 20 years in the form of like teaching yeah. and talks and books and 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 the, and the work. But, I, you know, I, I say this at pretty much at the end of any talk that I give is that I look forward to the day where I never hear again anyone coming up to me after a lecture saying, I wish I had learned this sooner. When that happens, when I never hear that again, then we will have shifted the cultural narrative. And that is something that we must do as women, because here's the thing. From a young age, little boys are taught about the function of their bodies and the form that their self-care should take. And they have, from a young age, this sense of agency and empowerment in their relationship with their body, and that they should use their body as a tool to engage with their life in a powerful way. Little girls, however, are taught to view their bodies from a distance, a wary, distrustful, disgusted distance. And really look at them as this unending project that you always have to work on because you're never quite thin enough or quite pretty enough or um, whatever it is, right? And the difference, the massive difference, and, 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 and to even point it out further, and that, that education about the function of your body that you get as a male, it's like the extreme opposite that you get as a female, not only are you deprived of the education and the information that you need about the actual biological facts about your biological function, but you are actually fed a completely false narrative of toxic propaganda to make you hateful and distrustful about your body. And if you compare the two um, upbringings, um, the two indoctrinations, and then the life trajectory that stems out from that, just between the genders, it is no wonder that over almost half of women in their reproductive years are suffering with health problems. And it's something like under 10% of men in their reproductive years are suffering with health problems. Me, Trisha here. I am so excited because enrollment just opened for my signature six week group coaching program called Be Your Own Joyologist. Yes, I teach you all like, seriously, so much value. So Many tools are packed in to this six-week course, sharing all of my tools, my tips, my tricks for how I get through my life so that I am always 
mindful of what I'm thinking, feeling, saying, doing, who I am being. The program is six weeks long. Enrollment just opened. And if you're listening to this later, still go check out the program and you can get on the wait list for the next round. It's yourjoyologist.com slash courses and you'll see the link or just go to the direct link in the show notes. So at six weeks, you get emails every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday that are highlighting one tip, one tool, one thing that really supports me in living my life the most powerfully. And then every Wednesday, we have a one-hour group call. It's okay if you miss the call. I have had people participate in this all over the world and all over time zones. Ideally, yes, show up live, make it happen. But if you miss it, you will get an audio link and a video link pretty much immediately to be able to take in that information and to listen or watch over and over and over again, whether you are on the live call or not. Every week, we also have a one-hour period that fluctuates from day to day and hour, depending on the week. So I poll you and see what would work best for you. One week, it might be a Tuesday at noon. The next week, it might be a Friday at 3 p.m. It varies to make sure that we get your ideal time zone and time frame in. In that one hour, you can ask me anything. It doesn't just have to be about that week's material. I am there for you direct coaching. Also, if you make those live calls at the end of the calls, I am there for you. I want to support you. I want to give you one-on-one coaching. So this six-week program is packed, packed, packed. And I am so passionate about it. I am so in it fully. You have my full support for the six weeks. And honestly, people are in that Facebook group that will write years later and I still show up and so does the do the members as well. We show up for each other. It's a true community. I love everybody in there. And you know, just go check it out, yourjoyologist.com slash courses. Check out the Be Your Own Joyologist program. Sign up. There are tons of payment options because I don't want the payment to be something that deters you. So I make it, break it down so that there is something for everyone's budget. And because of the current climate, I will be offering several scholarships. Check out the program. And I would love to hear any questions from you. Feel free to email me, DM me at your joyologist. Wow. Um, I love all of your amazing research and like how I'm so glad that this happened to you, unfortunately. Um <laughs> so that you could (laughs) be inspired to do the research and um, share it with all of us. I want to get back into your story because I also just like not just even learning about that, but like the fact of, you know, you making a career out of this. And I'm sure like that had to take challenges and hardships and you constantly being connected to this wanting to be your work in the world. So when you're back at John Hopkins and like you said, you were there when this new um, research was coming out. Like, did you end up then switching out of your major? Did you stay there and graduate with this, what you said is now called a functional medicine? Like, were you able to just be like, especially at a school like that, like, this is what I'm doing. So like, did they just like grant you your own degree and like research? What, how did that work? And then where did you go after you graduated? 
So I graduated from Hopkins um, and decided not to go to medical school and then just did my own um, combination of trainings and apprenticeships with various practitioners and studied functional nutrition and apprenticed with acupuncturists and uh, naturopathic physicians and really uh, did as much, you know, studying and, and getting certifications as, as one could at the time. Um, and then really got clear that the, the protocol was effective. And after getting my health coaching, um, certification decided to start helping other women one-on-one and, you know, slowly and slowly seeing more and more clients. And then the reputation began to grow. Um, and when you started as like a health coach, were you always with like the I want to help people that are having these sort of hormone issues or did you would you start taking anybody for health coaching or did you always want to gear your work to like hormonal issues? It was always it was always women's hormonal issues. I mean, the background that I brought to things because of my education at Hopkins, um, you know, just health coaching was a piece of the puzzle, but it was not the whole thing. So I yeah. think, um, yeah, it was always women's health. And at a certain point, my practice was so full and I was getting emails from women in different time zones and geographic regions. And I just thought there's got to be a better way to help women than this one-on-one model. And I started just trying to ask myself, oh, well, I just asked myself that question. What would that look like? Um, and this was back in 2000 and, uh, 2009. Um, and so I, I really started just trying to figure that out. This is before telehealth, before any online programs. I mean, this is before pretty much anything. And so um, I had some powerful conversations with some pretty extraordinary people who really saw my vision for sort of this global virtual platform where women could come and get educated, um, do the protocol virtually. And yeah, I, that gave me the confidence to pursue the idea, you know, because I, it, it, this, I was already such an outlier as it was. <laughs> I, was already, I was already somebody yeah. who you know, when I would talk to other medical uh, professionals, they would look at me like I had three heads. Like, what are you talking about? You can't, Hmm. you can't put PCOS into remission. You can't put endometriosis into remission. Well, yes, you can actually. But you were seeing it, right? You were working with people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember this one woman, she was in her uh, late thirties, early forties. And she had an, like a, an imminent surgical necessity for, for an ovarian cyst. And so we had been working together, just started and she had gone for her GYN exam and and they found the cyst and they said, listen, you know, sometime in the next two months, we got to go in and take it out. She said, okay, well, I would like to, I just started this program with Elisa I would like to make all these changes that she is teaching me about. And then I want to come back in to be examined. 
So I told her, I said, listen, you know, this is all still, you know, experimental in the sense that, you know, we had, I hadn't yet worked on a, a preoperative ovarian cyst. And, and I said, so let's, let's hope that it at least shrinks down to a point where you no longer need the surgery. So she, she is very diligent, does all the food changes, et cetera. And, uh, and then I get a call from a doctor and he says, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm, I'm the doctor of this woman that you're treating. I am, I am calling because I my, I cannot, under, I cannot process what I'm looking at. I said, what are you, ta- I said, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, well, two months ago, the scan, the ultrasound scan I have of her is showing this extremely large cyst that needed imminent surgical removal. And now I'm looking at her scan and there is nothing there. What did you do? <laughs> and I said, well, that was great news, <laughs> you know, but he was, he just couldn't, it just, he, you know, just couldn't compute for him. And I said, well, what we did, and I explained to him the steps of the protocol. And he said, wow, that is so interesting. Can I send more people to you? I said, sure. You know, yeah. so it was, it, I think it, you know, in the beginning, it, it took a lot of seeing is believing for some of these yeah. early physicians to, to re- they, they, they were amazed, but also really happy because Oftentimes in gynecology, it's a very frustrating, you know, the obstetric side of things is often much more joyful and you feel a sense of completion, you know, woman is pregnant, you deliver the baby. It's a good day, right? As you know, God willing, everything goes well. Um, But in gynecology, it's often a very frustrating experience for both doctor and patient because there isn't much in the way of treatment. There's uh, synthetic birth control and their surgical yeah. procedures, neither of which are curative, right? So a lot of these physicians who encountered me in the early days, again, before functional medicine had become popularized in the mainstream, were just genuinely moved uh, by not only what they were seeing in their patient, but then also under, you know, I would talk them through the science and they were really encouraged by that as a possibility. And so that was really also very encouraging for me too. So it, it was uh, a really interesting time <laughs> um, being this outlier, but really recognizing that I had something that was truly helping women and that needed to be shared with every woman. And so, yeah, it was an insane amount of work to build this virtual global platform. Um, again, before telehealth, before online programs, I had to build the pro like the whole digital experience from scratch. There were no plug and play. Right. These days it's like, you know, here is how, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I had to envision it and hire a dev team to build it. Um, and then we launched it in March of 2012. Uh, and, and then I launched my, and then I, and, and my first book happened, um, in 2013, uh, I was, I was somehow on Dr. Oz in 2013, making a little bit of TV and feminist history as the first human being to go on national television and, and 
give a visual demonstration of simulated menstrual blood and describe why that's important to observe and what that means about your hormones. Um, did you get, uh, even maybe before that, but did that episode two, or even this whole process where like you named that one doctor, doctor was like shocked and excited, but were you also experiencing any like pushback and like, who are you? Or you can't be talking about that. And who does this person think she is saying that she can heal? Uh, Healing. I don't use that word. Yeah, I don't know what, yeah. Like what would I talk about, um, you know, remission, remission is temporary. You know, uh, meaning I know that if I plugged because again, right. We're going back to that epigenetic discovery, right. It's diet and lifestyle inputs. If twin A eats fast food and smokes and already has cancer, then the logic is that if twin B starts eating fast food and smoking, then twin B will develop cancer because of their genetics and epigenetic performance. So in the same way, if I unmodify or revert back to dietary and lifestyle habits that I know are incompatible with the function of my endocrinology, I should expect a relapse in most of my symptoms. Yeah. Right? And so that is true for any hormonal situation if you are someone who is hormonally sensitive. And frankly, the more research I have done, it's really just a matter of time. It's not if or if you're hormonally sensitive from a genetic point of view, any woman can develop a hormonal imbalance if she gets the inputs wrong. And so many of us are getting the inputs wrong these days. And this is what led me to write my second book is because of two things that I, you know, because I asked myself the question, you know, after having built this thing and helped so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of women around the world, um, why is it that 50% of women are sick? You know, because I I was looking around at the media, you know, it was was a glorious time, um, you know, a couple of years back where uh, the, the free bleeding on Instagram was taking place and women were running the marathon without menstrual care products. And, and it was like this, this menstrual, I don't know, revolution. And I, I mean, I was like, I I don't know, it was a wonderful experience, you know, (laughs) it's quite the extreme opposite of what my experience had been prior to, which was like, you know, nobody wanted to talk about it. So I said, and then I, and I watched it, I tracked it and it, and it was consistently it really set the foundation for us to have in the media in an unprecedented historical way from a female point of view, more content everywhere. My goodness, I did a a collaboration with Harper's Bazaar, for God's sake, Harper's Bazaar, several articles about all sorts of, um, obscure menstrual disorders, like adenomyosis, things that most women don't even know about. Um, and we had all this content and we have all of this access as women, like everyone can access the internet these days, right? That should equal, Trisha, in my mind, again, <laughs> I'm a super logical person, that should equal a reduction in the population cohort of women with hormonal problems or more, or simply said, more healthier women, right? Yeah. But I looked at the data and it, it was just getting worse. And I said, why is that happening? Why is it that women are sicker than ever before? And the, the, that question led me really to write this next book and, and in the flow. 
And it was the two things that I found just, again, shocked me as much as I was shocked 20 years ago when I discovered that conventional medicine doesn't have a cure for hormonal problems. I was equally shocked to discover what I discovered. So here's what I discovered. Two things. One, women are being left out of medical fitness and nutrition research. It's really important for you to know that because... That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I'm confused. there's a whole, there's a whole reason, there's a historical reason for that, that I out, that I go through in a bulleted list for you in chapter two of the book. But essentially there was a, a drug trial gone very wrong in the sixties around a drug called thalidomide that caused a whole host of birth defects. Mm. But how, and so they just said women in their reproductive years are not allowed Crazy. to participate in drug trials. Well, that's okay. That's fine. But there's so much research that doesn't involve the research on taking drugs that just involves research. For example, all the research that's done on circadian rhythms, right? You're just taking like saliva samples. Nobody's taking any medication. But because of that, they have left women out. And it's such a problem that in 1996, (laughs) the National Institute of Health, because this is such a problem in the sense that women not being included in medical research increases their risk of mortality, dying in hospital settings, right? Because there isn't enough research uh, that they were so concerned about that, that they issued sort of like this mandate to include more women in their reproductive years in human clinical trials, not necessarily drug trials, but just any sort of research being done on, on people. And as of 2016, the status report that was updated showed that progress was slim to none. And this hmm. is really important. And the same is true of fitness and research. It's men and maybe some postmenopausal women, but no women in their reproductive years. This wow. explains, of course, why men are not suffering, right? Because they're being researched, they're being given information that is exactly applicable to their biology. And then they're using it to their uh, great advantage from a health point of view. You are not being researched. You're g- being given But I don't know that. I'm giving them information. You don't, right. That's not, that's not being made transparent yeah. in the journalism. In fact, when I went on the Mind Body Green podcast, Jason Wacob, who is a wonderful um, thought leader in, in the space and co-founder of Mind Body Green, he said, what can we do? you know, he has two daughters. He said, what should we do? I said, we just simply just need to apply the journalistic um, rigor of making transparent who the research is being done on, right? So for example, all this, like this year has been the year of intermittent fasting. Everybody should be intermittent fasting. It's so good for you. It, it, It improves your lifespan and decreases insulin sensitivity and all of these things, right? That research has been done only on men and postmenopausal women. The research that's been done on women in their reproductive years shows quite the opposite effect, that if you fast for more than 12 hours in your reproductive years, you worsen your insulin sensitivity, you uh, worsen your cognitive function, you uh, worsen your cardiovascular health, and you can shrink your ovaries and damage your thyroid performance. But they're just reading all of the research done on intermittent fasting that has been done, that has been given great results to men, for men but they don't know women. that it's for men because we're just reading results. Intermittent fitness, 
fasting right. is great and can do all these things for you, but they that's don't right. know that it was not that's right. And then that's the same, like high intensity interval training, the same thing, right? So we're being fed in the media information that is cutting edge, right? But we're not, it, we're, they aren't taking that final step to say, wow, this new research is showing intermittent fasting is so beneficial to this cohort that was studied, huh. right? If, it, if they just took that extra step, then women could take the appropriate grain of salt and say, oh, it may or may not be applicable to me. So when I do try it as an experiment and I see that I feel bad, instead of having an inner dialogue that says, I must have done something wrong, which is what we say, you would say something appropriate, which is, oh, this doesn't work for my system. Yeah, I will stop, right? But because we're not given appropriate information, we internalize it as self-criticism. I also make up though that people, you know, some women might try the intermittent fasted and they do feel great for a couple of days, weeks, months, perhaps, but they might be or likely doing damage to their bodies that they don't know and then might hit this total like, right? Like, could that also be true that you do something? Oh, I love this, whether it's hit whatever, all that thing, a trend and that they feel great for a little bit of time and then start to feel bad, but they wouldn't relate it to oh, it must be the intermittent fasting or it must be the this. They think it must be something else is wrong with them because of this research says this and well, I did it that week and I felt great. Sure, that's a possibility. But really what that sort of led me to the the second discovery that that again, um, just blew the lid off of things. <clears throat> and so the reason why you cannot use the the vast majority of um, self-care practices, biohacking practices, fitness practices, dietary practices that are being suggested to you based on male research is because you have two biological rhythms at play, whereas men only have one. And you have this specific biological rhythm called an infradian rhythm that you've never heard about. And I've been doing podcasts since this book launched in January. One of a couple of which have been with medical doctors who had never even heard that term before. So we all know the circadian rhythm, and we have studied that very extensively. And the circadian rhythm, of course, the male hormonal biological pattern follows the circadian rhythm pretty exactly. The female biological rhythm has its own pattern, and it's called the infradian rhythm. It does not exist over the course of 24 hours. But men, men's uh, biological rhythm does exist over the course of 24 hours or it takes place over the course of 24 hours. Your infradian rhythm is something that you experience over the course of a month. Uh, and, and we break it down over the experience of the four phases of your cycle. And what's interesting is just as we know the circadian rhythm um, influences and governs, you know, um, your, when during the day you have highest versus lowest resting blood pressure, when you're going to have your natural time for bowel movement stimulation, you know, there's certain, there's certain optimal timing for certain functions of the body that the circadian rhythm manages. And we have done extensive studies to show that disrupting that with diet and lifestyle is extremely damaging to your health in the short term and the long term. So we know now it's very conventional wisdom, like 
for for people to try to have their power mornings and their blue light blocking glasses and da 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 da, right? Well, it turns out that the infradian rhythm for women in their reproductive years governs six key systems of the body. The brain, the metabolism, the microbiome, the stress response system, the immune system, and the reproductive system. And so when you look at these two things together, the fact that women are being left out of research and given information about how to take care of the function of their bodies that's not based on their bodies, and the fact that we have this infradian rhythm that we have a complete, utter blind spot about. Everything that you are doing right now, from your morning routine, to your diet, to your workout, to how you use a time management system, for goodness sake, is all disrupting your infradian rhythm and is exactly why 50% of women are sick and do not need to be and why less than 10% of men are, right? Because they're doing diet, fitness, their morning routine, their work management, time management, all in a way that optimizes their hormonal biological rhythm. And you are instead disrupting it actively without realizing it because you're not being told how it works. It wasn't even given a name until my book came out. The, you know, I was, I'm, my book is the first book to talk about the infradian rhythm, which is shocking. And then um, you're not even told what to do with it, right? Which also I, I, of course, go into great detail describing what you should do then. And so I didn't just paint a picture around the problem. I also created a solution because that's sort of my nature. Um, so I created something called the cycle syncing method. And this allows you to eat, exercise, and manage your time to optimize your female biological rhythm, just like the men are doing, but to do it for your infradian rhythm so that you can eliminate unnecessary physical um, disruption and start to thrive in your health and in your life. Which, so yeah, like, and that's, so in learning, which guys, well, you've got to go get the In the Flow, right, book. That's the second one. Yeah, I was like, um, but so it's just, you know, like, yeah, with this cycle, that we all have that it's like different, right? That it's sort of like you could be thinking you're making all the best choices and doing all the right things, but that day to day, that's not the same. Is that right? Week to week, it's not the same. So for example, let's, let's say, let's say you've been seduced by some uh, success guru who is most likely male, who is telling you that I am like completely not someone who is um, having a negative opinion of men. I have two brothers, no sisters. I have a great relationship with my dad, a great relationship with my husband. Love men. What I'm sick trying to help you sort of piece together here is that the source of the information matters, especially if the source has a blind spot about your biology, right? So if you have a success guru talking to you about an optimal morning routine that's working so well for himself, right? He's referencing his, whether he's doing this based on science or just his own observation, um, this is based on his biological rhythmic reality. And so for men, 
every night when they go to sleep, they make all of this testosterone. When they wake up, they have their maximum blood serum concentration of both testosterone and cortisol. Any man who is ambitious and smart would wake himself up as close to 5 a.m. as possible to take full advantage of what nature is infusing his body with in that early hours of the morning with testosterone and cortisol, meaning get up, do your, do your high intensity interval workout, do your deep work, set your intentions, do your meditation, like do all those things in the first bunch of hours of the day before you have to get into the office and interact with other people and have meetings and whatever, right? And if you do that as a male, you will be healthier, you will be more in your flow, and you will be more successful based on optimizing your hormonal biological rhythm. If, however, you do that as a female, like, oh, if, you, if you're in a heterosexual relationship and you've decided to get up with your partner, your male partner, in the early morning because you've both listened to that podcast about the, you know, these success morning rituals and uh, you're both waking up at 5 a.m. and you're wondering why you feel like you got run over by a truck, well, I could explain it to you, right? in several ways. One, the female brain is much more complex than the male brain and it has been well-researched to require 20 minutes more of sleep every night to go through its self-cleaning process so that it can do optimal functioning the next day, right? Another reason that you cannot be doing that same morning routine with your male partner or even the same one every day is because resting rates of cortisol shift across the infradian cycle. You have phases of the cycle where resting cortisol is lower, making it um, a little bit easier for you to do a more intense morning routine, whatever that means to you. And then you have phases of the cycle where resting cortisol is higher, meaning that you would actually disrupt cortisol by doing an intense morning routine, whatever that means to you, likely a workout, not eating, that kind of a thing, right? Extended fasting. That's actually going to disrupt your hormonal cascade for the entire day, p- making you perform cognitively suboptimally, down-regulating your metabolic function, decreasing your immunity, suppressing your sex drive and reproductive function, and so on and so on. And so doing this once in a while, of course, your body can recover, but it's the fact that we do it all the time without realizing it, that we literally dig ourselves into a hole of energy and uh, brain fog and weight gain and hormonal problems and immune dysfunction and mood destabilization. And we just don't have to if we understand the function of our biological rhythm and the form of care that it requires, regardless of how you feel about it, there is a way your body needs to be cared for. And I've outlined that for everyone in the middle section of In the Flow, um, chapter by chapter, chart by chart, so you know what to eat when across your infradian rhythm, which workouts to do across the infradian rhythm, how to manage your time. I, Trisha, used to be, you know, as the studious child that I was, right, I, I remember staying up um, sometimes late at night as I struggled with insomnia then too in high school even. And I remember watching a Tony Robbins infomercial and that was the first time I had seen him and, and you know, he was talking about time management and that was the first time I'd heard that concept. 
And I really was like, wow, if I could learn how to manage my time better, then maybe that would help me with all these health issues and in my life and da, da, da. And I remember dedicating myself to trying these different systems, his system, the Franklin Covey system. And every time it was the same, I would do it. I would, you know, dedicate myself to making that, that schedule that I was going to stick to each and every day. And I would be able to stick to it for a period of time. And then something would shift and I wouldn't be able to stick to it anymore. And again, because I wasn't given the information about how my body worked as a teenager, I internalized that as self-criticism and said, oh, something is wrong with me that I can't follow this. Um, subsequently, of course, I have figured out that nothing at, at all was wrong with me. I was using a single biological clock system when I had two of them, right? I needed a system that not only took into account the circadian uh, timing of my body, but also the infradian. And so I built in for myself um, the world's first time management system for women with an active infradian rhythm. So in the book, in chapter six, you'll see that, that planner so that you can actually plan your day according to both the circadian and infradian rhythms. So you can start to really take advantage of timing in your life and get in the flow, right? The way men do, you can do too, right? You can be in the zone, in the flow, meaning that state of peak performance where you are maximizing your output your creativity, your productivity in a joyful, pleasurable way while minimizing stress, overwhelm, and fatigue. Well, and it also sounds like it's like your book is going to be healing a lot of women, but also I hope and make up giving like more self-compassion and like nurturing yourself. Because what I was talking about, you gave the example of like, okay, you listen to a success podcast and you're going to do what you're boyfriend or whoever is living with that I make up that a lot of people were so hard on ourselves. Even you find what works for you. Like, okay, I wake up at this time and I do this meditation and I like this for breakfast and I do this. Like we create our own time management, our productivity and self-care techniques on what we're eating and how we work out and all of that. That does feel good for us. But so then you hit a week where maybe you feel like, oh, I don't have as much energy and I want to sleep in. And, and we're so used to making our wrong instead of the compassionate of like, oh, maybe it's that this is the week, right? That you need more like nurturing or mellow like energy or something like that. But like seeing this as science, then you're allowed to let yourself off the hook and take care of yourself instead of make yourself wrong. Because why am I craving this type of thing now? And why am I not like, don't want to go for, do my high energy workout and like that we're so used to making ourselves wrong, even if it's like, like, yeah, like even if it's not some success plan, you know, that we think, but just like, this is what works for me and I feel great. And then we feel bad when we like want to sleep in or we want to. So many things I have to say. First, the fact that um, the best that we have to offer women is figure it out on your own <laughs> is unacceptable. <laughs> and it is not the same rhetoric that is given to men. Men do not want to figure it out. They want the scientific precision of what exactly to do to improve their outcomes. Why do you think biohacking is so popular among men? Because again, that early indoctrination of give me the information about how my body works so I can use it as a tool to master my life, right? They believe that that is something that they deserve. 
first and foremost. And then the other reason why it's so popular among men is because men fall off the cognitive and stamina and energy cliff around three o'clock because of their hormonal biochemistry, the, the huge you know, downregulation of testosterone and cortisol. And they need to find ways to compensate for that with supplements and nootropics and whatever else, right? And so they're really interested in hacking their biology, uh, aka biohacking, so they can get more out of themselves physically and cognitively, performance-wise, each and every day, because they believe that they have the right to expect that. As women, because of this complete, utter, ridiculous propaganda that we're fed from an early age, we don't believe we have that right at all. We believe we should suffer. We believe the best that we could hope for is that we could figure it out something that works for us on our own. We have to be, we have to be completely on our mm-hmm. own to figure this out and that there's no help for us anywhere. Doctors can't help us with our period problems and the biohackers don't know what to do with our hormonal issues. And we're just on our own. We believe that. Well, that's just me. Yeah. Like that's me again, from someone who's come from being an undiagnosed person and tried a bunch of things. And like I said, that me managing, then that a lot of my life has been me managing my lifestyle and my diet to feel better. Well, I mean, I had to do it too, right? I mean, like I, I'm talking about this, the fact that you should feel some righteous indignation, that this is what you have been programmed to think. We should question why we think these things. And we think these things because of misinformation right? We think, oh, I'll just figure it out on my own. The second thing is you don't have to be guessing anymore. Now that this book is written, there is a precise, predictable explanation and scientific sort of appreciation that you can have for exactly everything that you feel all the time, right? Those energy shifts, the mood shifts, the preference shifts, Did you know, for example, that in 1996, Dr. Catherine Woolley from Northwestern University discovered that women's brains structurally change up to 25% over the course of the month? You know, that feeling that you have of, gee, I'm interested in this more now than at next week. That's not in your head. It's in your hormonal neurochemical, you know, experience, right? It's not, it's not in your imagination. Which that's amazing to have that science feedback. Cause yeah, like I said, I think that it's especially for women that that could be something then to make themselves feel bad about. That's right. (laughs) And that's the third thing that I wanted to say is that, and I write about it in the book too. And I'm a recovering perfectionist, um, self-critical, also recovering self-criticizer. And when I look at the, and I'm a root cause analysis person, right? So when I look at like all the years I've been working with women individually and on myself, why do we all have that same psychopathology of self-criticism and the desire to be perfect? Where does that come from? I don't see it as much. In men, it's not the same uh, epidemic levels that it is in women. Why is that? Well, when we look at it through the lens of biological rhythms, of course, when you aren't told that you have a second biological rhythm, right? And then that gets activated in puberty and you start to feel different week over week, right? But you're not told that that exists. And then you look at the the dominant culture, which unfortunately in a patriarchy is male, 
Um, although I, I love that that hopefully is shifting. Uh, you unconsciously make an association that in order for you to succeed or survive, that you must somehow strive for sameness every day and that you must suppress any of that inner urge to, to go with your flow or be different. Or if your energy's slightly less to rest, no, no, push, keep going, do, do, go, go. If you're tired at the gym, no pain, no gain. You, there are all these inner mantras that you pull in to try to force yourself to be the same day in and day out. And what is that sameness? It's the sameness of the circadian clock. Every day it's the same. It's rinse and repeat, rest and reset every 24 hours. And your time management planner doing the same thing at the same time every day. That whole premise is circadian. Infradian premise is very different. You do things at different times of the month and you adjust accordingly to your infradian patterns. Um, the fact that you don't know about it and feel like the only way you're going to survive is to be the same is the origin of that perfectionism. Perfect really isn't about being perfect so much as it is about being the same every day. Consistency, right? And once you adopt the infradian pattern, once you start using the cycle syncing method, the way that I've outlined it for you in the book, you're going to he heal that on such a deep emotional level for yourself. I cannot tell you until you go through it yourself, but what I can share from my own experience with myself and with everyone who has taken it on for themselves and shared their experience with me in our community, um, uh, you know, it's so deeply, profoundly healing to let go of this idea of forcing sameness every day. Not only does this idea of perfectionism completely evaporate as insanity, um, but this all the self-critical talk evaporates as well. There is no need to be self-critical when you are not trying to force yourself to do something that's totally unnatural for your bio biochemistry, which is to be the same every day. You wouldn't be self-critical anymore because you now know what's going on and you're going with that flow. And instead of self-criticism, it becomes self-celebration. Yes. <laughs> More self-celebration. Yes. Okay, obviously you have mm. so much amazing knowledge. I'm you could, yeah, we could talk for hours. But I'm going to ask the wrap-up questions real quick. So sure. normally you can see, okay. I can share my screen and I'd show you my keychain phrases. I just emailed them to you. Let's see if I got them from a different oh, I got them. from a different email. I sent it from my, a different email address. <laughs> so. To choose uh, not even which phrase you like the most, but like which one you would like as a reminder in your life the most right now and why. I am magic. Mm, love that one. And why is that your choice? Because, because of my double X chromosomes, I am literally magic because of my uh, having the presence of two internal powerful biological clocks coexisting at the same time. That is actually um, one of the fundamental premises of quantum physics, right? Two timings coexisting at the same time, two realities at the same time. Uh, that's magic. Uh, the fact that I bleed every month and do not <laughs> die, that is magic. Magic is power, or, you know, I would, I would say the magic there feels more like yeah. I am powerful. And, uh, and my body is the source of that power. 
not in the ways that we were told because of how we look, but because of how it is functionally structured to be extraordinary and powerful and awe-inspiring and uh, the, the substrate of creation. Okay. Um, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? Oh, I mean, it's probably two things. It's definitely just like staring at my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just, any, 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 just looking at her or stealing a hug or whatever, that definitely brings me a lot of joy, but also, um, connecting to the women in our community. I, I really do get a lot of joy from watching a woman have her transformation and reclamation. It's like, it's just so good. You know, Love it. and that's like, yeah, so it's just something like if you're having a low moment or maybe you're about to like have a podcast conversation or something, you're feeling like off, would that be something you would just like go into your like community and that gives you a boost? Yeah, I mean, I think seeing seeing the fact that um, with, it, you know, with information comes a, a healing of the relationship to the self as a woman every that never gets old yeah. for me I have to imagine yeah yeah your work has to be so yeah I'm just give you yeah give you life and joy and purpose every single day like hearing these stories from people I don't think that I I could do the no. enormity of the, the sort of the, the mission without totally it being joyful enough. okay so I ask everybody <laughs> to apply this phrase to their own life what is easiest for you is not always what is best for you so what is easiest for me is to blank. What is best for me is to blank. This could be something about like how you're naturally wired, your habits, routines, like how your brain reacts. <laughs> hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking. Uh, I mean, I probably did. Yeah, I'm like from someone who's such a big like researcher. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I. I don't know if I have yeah. any of those anymore. Could be an, you know, an older, I mean, I, you know, I think, default that like it used to be I mean, easier for me. Yeah, to, an older one would have been like, yeah, what's easiest for me is to eat all the homemade <laughs> pasta that's full of gluten, but that's not good for my hormones. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, things like that. But yeah, I, I've um, I've certainly uh, made a habit of editing those things out when I can. Um. All right. And the last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It because I feel so often we're seeking outside of ourselves for these feelings of enoughness, mm -hmm. of worth, of validation, of success. And once I do this or have this, That's then amazing. I'll feel it. Um, so what are you claiming for yourself right now? Um, I, it's the same thing I wish other women to claim for themselves too, which is that, um, you are a force of nature designed specifically, uh, to be such, and that it's all inside of you, the way out of overwhelm and health issues and self-doubt and self-criticism and, uh, frustration and burnout is in into your body, into your infradian rhythm, um, into your relationship with your, with yourself and your body and your cycle. And it's such, it's such an extraordinary journey to take. I hope you do take it. Yes. Thank you so much for everything that you do. I'll let you share it here and all of your work. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely mind blown. <laughs> 
<laughs> by what you've done and so grateful because yeah it is it's shocking that these things that like like that you're like yeah like at the forefront of like prying this information <laughs> and sharing it and um yeah so thank you for everything that you do and everybody definitely go get her books the links will both be um in the show notes and um yeah any last words thank you for having me and for sharing this information with the women in your community no oh, you're so welcome I mean, wow. <laughs> Go, if you haven't already, order her book, In the Flow. Well, that's the most recent book, In the Flow. I will have links to everything that we mentioned and all of her stuff in the show notes. You can get her, her app, myflowtracker.com. Go to flowliving.com for all other things. She has like a membership. Um, her cycle syncing method, all the stuff. She, you can find her at Flow Living on Instagram and also at alisa.alisa.vitti. Um, full show notes, links will be at yourjoyologist.com slash podcast. All things me, yourjoyologist.com and I'm at yourjoyologist. I would love to hear what you think of this episode about the podcast. So please share it and tag me, tag us. Um, yeah. Wow. Seriously blown away by her and all of these discoveries that she is making and is really changing the way that women see and relate to their bodies and their whole freaking lives. If you do choose to subscribe to the podcast, please do. That means you also get the episodes immediately when they go live. No waiting rate the podcast and leave me a review. I love to hear your reviews. And it also does help the podcast get found. And if you do that, you can send me a screenshot of your review and email it to podcast at yourdualogist.com. And I'll send you a little gift for my product line. Just like I have every guest pick one of my keychains. You can pick your own keychain. There's the affirmation deck, magnets, mugs, water bottles, notepads, journals, all sorts of goodies to empower you to own who you are, to claim your joy, claim your worth, claim your value. Also, make sure to check out my Own Your Awesome app, the daily inspiration app found in the Apple App Store. Hundreds of powerful thoughts and phrases to empower your day. As the final thought, I would love for you to think of right now in this moment whether you've already listened to this podcast and I've asked you this question before, what are you claiming for yourself right here, right now? Claim it. And um, keep on listening to some more amazing conversations or I'll find you back here next week.